0: But I've decided that um, I'm actually no longer participating in 2020. Um, Kind of started off this year, really liked it a lot, thought maybe this is going to be a good year. And I wanted to make sure that um, 2020 was, um, like, going to be a year that I was just like, it's over, we're done. Because 2020, this is what you gave us, right? COVID-19. Things were good, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this hit, And now people are nowhere, right? And not only did we get COVID-19 just a couple months into this thing, like we can't find toilet paper or any of the other essentials that we need for baking, for eating. Amazon, I mean, I want to order stuff. And it's like, yes, your item will ship May 15th, 2021, because that's non essential, right? And not only has it taken those kind of things from us, it's also like robbed us of everything normal about life. This was drone footage of the city of Boston. This isn't some holiday. This is any day in the city of Boston. The streets are empty. Our schools are empty. Our workplaces are empty. Some of us, our restaurants are empty. Some of us don't have jobs. Like 2020, you just went and ripped out our hearts. Like you're just, I'm done. We're done. And then as if to like, what'd you give us in return? You gave us this Tiger King. Like what in the world? This is the only thing you've given us this year, 2020. And then I don't know about you, but last night um, my wife walks in and says, Hey, have you heard? And I'm like, heard, heard about what? She was like, I I don't think I can tell you. You might not be able to sleep about it. And I'm like, no girl, come on. What? She's like, um, so have you heard about the murder hornets? There was an article written about them today. I was like, I'm sorry. What murder hornets? I was like, that a real thing? She was like, oh, yeah, they're like huge. They That is a murder hornet. That, the queen, is like two inches long. They fly in to bees, to their hives, and they essentially like decapitate all the bees in the nest and then fly their thoraxes which is not a word you normally use in a sentence, but flies their thoraxes to feed their young. I'm like, what is up with this creature? She's like, yeah, so they're not based here in America, but they just found a few of them in Washington. So they've made it over to the United States. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that thing is terrifying. Like it goes in and decapitates honeybees and then flies off with their thoraxes. I'm like, the only thing that would make that weirder is if we find out that these like little murder hornets end up like going to tattoo parlors and getting face tattoos. I mean, like that's about as weird as I expect this thing to go right now, because 2020, you've broken my heart. So we're done. I'm now officially living in 2021 and we're through, right? Um, like, I don't know about you, but that's kind of how I feel about this year. Whenever I think something can't get weirder, it does. You broke my heart, Tom Brady, right? Like it just keeps getting stranger and sadder. And yet I think that if there's any year where maybe people could have related to us, it was the year 1816. You see, in the year 1816, what started off as a normal year quickly devolved into a strange year. It's actually the only year in um, U.S. history where trees did not grow. For those dendrochronologists among us who love cutting down trees and counting tree rings, you'll know that 1816 is the only year you can't find a tree ring to represent growth because that was the year where we had no summer. On July fourth of that year, it was snowing on July fourth throughout America. The temperature globally was eight degrees cooler. Famine broke out in this region. Horses and livestock perished. A global pandemic sweeped around. Arguably one of the first global pandemics in the in the world's history happens with cholera. Like it was such a strange year. It rains for eight weeks straight in Ireland. Indiana and Illinois, both as states, owe their statehood to 1816 1816 and the mass migration of New Englanders who moved out west. Families uprooted their lives from New England to move out west beyond the Ohio River because things here got so bleak and dark and crops were dying. On top of that, there was a couple of good things that came out of it. The the bleakness of that summer helped to inspire uh, Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein. And because of the large amount of horses that passed away that year, because there was no crops, um, eventually the bicycle was invented to help ease that transition, because there was no longer a kind of a common form of transportation. So Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and the bicycle sort of owe their their origin out of 1816. Now, what all those things have in common is, strangely, this right here. You see, this is Mount Tambora. Uh, It's in Indonesia. And this uh, may look quite picturesque, but this is actually a picture of a still active volcano today. Tambora was a volcano that exploded in 1815, around middle of the year. Its explosion um, was one of the largest, is the largest recorded explosion in kind of modern history. On a, the volcano scale is a scale of eight. This was a seven that registered. When it exploded, this Used to be a mountain that was over 13,000 feet. Today, the mountain is 9,000 feet. Inside of that mountain is the crater left over from that explosion. It's 3.7 miles across, and it's 3,000 miles deep into the center. When that exploded, enough dust went into the air to cover Rhode Island in 183 miles of ash and dust. You would have dug 183 miles deep all across Rhode Island to capture the amount of smoke and ash that this threw up. It's estimated that the size of the cloud that it ejected on the day that it, it exploded was roughly the size of Egypt. And as that smoke and dust and ash circled the globe, it blotted out the sun, and the sulf- the, kind of the sulfur present inside of it started causing damage on crops. Tens of thousands of people lost their lives in the immediate aftermath, and it shaped the entire year. And in fact, climate scientists to this day, whenever they draw an ice core out, they always use this moment to document and to benchmark where and how far the ice core goes down because this is recorded globally all around. And surprisingly, the series that I want to kick off today has a lot of similarities with what happened in 1815 and 1816. You see, for many of us, like the bumper showed before, the the Bible is something that maybe some of you grew up with as kids. You know the Bible stories. But then as you grew up, you kind of grew out of the Bible. Maybe it was college when you walked in and for the first time you were presented with scientific theories that negated the Bible as a book that you should trust. Or maybe it was Uh, Meeting someone of a different religion or no religion at all that made you begin to question whether or not you needed a religion. Maybe it was something that was done not necessarily from the Bible, but was done by people who claim the Bible is an important book to them, and they ended up because of their actions having and causing a reaction in you that allowed you to walk away. That many of us, even if we're not necessarily growing, didn't necessarily grow up in the Christian faith. Many of us. Um, know what it's like to, to kind of got into adulthood and, and said, you know, like, I'm not sure if this thing is really something I want to talk about or something I'm really confident in. And my desire through this month is not just that you would know the story of the Bible, although that we hope over the course of your time engaging with this encounter church that you learn the stories of the Bible. What I want to do this month is really look at the story behind the Bible, because that moment, much like Mount Tembora's explosion, is the most critical part of the whole story. All of those other parts of Mount Tambora's story are just the consequences, the after effects of what happened that day in Indonesia. And I want to help you, as Luke 1 kind of shows us. So Luke writes this, he says, Many have undertaken to drone up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. This certainty of the things you've been taught is, in essence, the summary of this month. Because I think when you start to understand, not just the Bible stories, but when you understand the story behind the Bible, it changes how you approach the Bible. The Bible doesn't need to be a barrier to your faith. It doesn't need to be a block for you exploring the Christian faith. That one of the things that I hope that you gain out of this is some certainty. That if you're a Christian, that over the course of May, what you'll find is even greater confidence in the Christian faith. And if maybe you check in every single week or checking in for the first time this week and you're curious about Christianity, that you would be drawn to some of the certainty that Luke unpacks for us. That this message today is really not so much about the Bible stories, but the story of Behind the Bible. And to to do that, I want to take some of Luke's writings. Luke chronicles the entire kind of storyline of Jesus, this rabbi turned religious teacher, turned miracle worker, turned healer, turned criminal who's crucified. And that Israel at the time was this little nondescript nation at the edge of the Roman Empire, nothing extraordinary historically was expected on the fringes of the Roman Empire. Everyone expected that the great things happened in Rome. And yet 2,000 years later, we're reading the writings of Luke, the medical physician who writes this document for Theophilus. And towards the end of his book, he, which he's laid out in chronological order, he gives us the final few moments that changed everything. And Luke 23 He says, now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision in action, their decision in action being the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was was an educated, affluent, wealthy uh, theologian slash lawyer. He was part of what would have been essentially the equivalent of the Supreme Court of the day in Israel. And Joseph had been a secret follower and fan of Jesus. He wasn't, he wasn't public with his support. He wasn't public with his interest in Jesus. He was, he was curious from a distance. Joseph had a reputation. He had uh, influence and he knew that his association with Jesus would damage that. But then this moment happens where Jesus is brought up in this sham trial and he's found guilty and they crucify him under the penalty of Roman law and And so what does Joseph of Arimathea do? He goes to Pilate, and he asks for Jesus' body. Now, here's the thing that's amazing. Going to Pilate, first of all, we get a glimpse of how truly influential and affluent Joseph of Arimathea was, because um, in that day, you just didn't walk up to Pilate and ask for something. So Joseph had some influence. But that we find that he, and from other historical documents, we know it was him and a man named Nicodemus, who was also part of that group, that they go to Calvary, that, the hill where Jesus was crucified, and they're responsible for taking down his body. Jesus' revolution that just a week prior to this moment, people had lined the streets going into Jerusalem. They'd cheered for him. They'd clapped for him. They'd celebrated. They're like, here he comes. This is the promised one we've been waiting on. And within seven days, he's dead. And everyone's abandoned him. His public followers, the, the disciples, the apostles, they, they've all run and they're in hiding. And Joseph of Arimathea, a man who had been a private fan of Jesus, now goes and makes one of the most public declarations. He goes to Pilate, and he asks to take the body. Now, crucifixion was a horribly gruesome act that we do not have time to unpack this morning. But it was was brutal. It was bloody. And taking someone's body off the cross was not something you did. It was not for the faint-hearted. There were nails that were having to be drug out of dead flesh, a heavy, heavy wooden beam. And Jesus's near naked body would have been plucked off of those wooden beams, wrapped in linen cloth and then carried his limp body and placed in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. See, Joseph, this is probably most likely Joseph of Arimathea's family's tomb. This is something that really incredibly wealthy people had at the time. And Joseph had had this cut out of a rock. And he takes Jesus' body down off the cross. And now forever, this man, who when Jesus was alive, was reluctant to let let anyone know he even knew him, is now going to Pilate to ask for his body. And in a permanent sign of honor and respect to Jesus, who's now been cast as a criminal and as a rebel, Joseph of Arimathea associates his family's name with Jesus for the rest of his life by placing his body in a tomb. Now, Luke has been slowly unpacking all these moments leading up. And the reason I wanted to camp on Joseph of Arimathea is because I think there's something worth noticing in that Joseph, who had been embarrassed of Jesus when he was living, now puts his reputation at stake when Jesus is dead. This is what Jesus' impact on this man's life did. And that part of the Bible for grown-ups is tied to the story behind the Bible that Luke is trying to tell for Theophilus that we're reading from today. Now, a couple days later, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the party supplies and went to the tomb. The disciples had spent all day, Saturday, decorating the tomb with banners that said, welcome back. This is from not Luke 24, 1 and 2, right? You see, what Joseph did that day, in his mind, was permanent. As one of our mentors says, nobody expected to find nobody. It was not normal. You know what dead people do? They stay dead. They don't get up. And and Luke 24 does not start off with the women bringing party supplies and the disciples spending all day Saturday decorating the tomb, saying, welcome back. They didn't show up with selfie sticks saying, man, look, I knew it was going to happen. That's why we're here, because we wanted to be the first person Jesus saw when he walked out of that tomb. No, in fact, what we find is that nobody, nobody expected to find nobody That in reality on the first day of the week very early in the morning the women took the spices they had prepared which was not party supplies it was embalming fluid of the day and they they moved to the tomb and they find they're surprised by this that the stone has been rolled away from the tomb it's been rolled away it's a very heavy stone and it says and when they entered they did not find the body of the lord jesus and it says, while they were wondering about this. Now, what's fascinating to me is, if you read the historical documents around this in these moments, that none of them, even when they found no body, jumped to the conclusion that Jesus must have rose from the dead. None of them. In fact, their assumption is someone has stolen the body, not that the body has gotten back up on its own. And so they're trying to figure it out. They're wondering about it. And it says, Suddenly, two men in cloth that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And it says, In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. This was not a section that any of them ever predicted would be written. This is truly extraordinary. And these angels who are standing in the tomb say to the women, he's alive, he's risen. Everything about this moment is absurd and ridiculous, extraordinary, unbelievable. But it's this moment, this defining moment, that is that explosion, that is at the very basis of the story behind the Bible. This moment serves as the certainty and the confidence that Luke was calling Theophilus to have, that if we're going to be people who approach the Bible as grownups, I think that we have to realize that the Bible is not a straw man argument. It's not a weak document. It's, it's not one thing. That Christianity, this thing that many of us claim to follow, is a very actually weak faith. And here's what I mean, like, you know, this may be a question, right? That you would ask, don't we only know about Jesus because of the Bible, right? Or maybe you're thinking like, I'm glad you say that it's weak because I was going to say, well, Luke's in the Bible, but here's, here's what I mean. When I say it's a weak faith because all someone would have had to do in the days, weeks, or months that followed is somebody with a body or just some of the body walking in anywhere would have shut down the Christian movement. All it would have taken to stop Christianity was somebody with the body or just some of the body because Christianity the rise of the Christian faith was not built on the Bible. It was not built on the church. It was built on a moment. It was built on this event, an event that was inherently fragile because all you had to disprove it was just show the body. And the reason I asked the question, well, isn't Luke in the Bible, And doesn't that essentially kind of circular logic disprove your argument? No, it's because I wanted you to realize how truly weak this thing is. One, his body would have stopped this whole thing. But no one had it. Because it wasn't there. No one in first century, second century, third century, fourth century, no one disputed the tomb was empty. There's no historical documents saying, oh no, it was the, it was, it was like Amazon delivering the package to the wrong house. Everybody looked in the wrong tomb. We found the right tomb. Even Pilate and the Jewish officials of the day, when they hear about it, their argument isn't, well, you just looked in the wrong tomb. They make up a story that says, well, some his disciples stole the body. But when you dig into the Christian faith, what you start to find is in the aftermath of the resurrection, that Saturday, the disciples were not hanging up banners. The disciples were not building a welcome party. They were hiding because they were terrified. They had put all their chips into Jesus. And on Friday afternoon, when he took his last breath, they thought the movement was done. They thought it was over. And they went back and did what they'd always done, their previous jobs, or they just hid. Because they thought they were next. And this thing that five days prior had felt like this unstoppable movement now didn't move along with his dead body. And that these rebels, these former fishermen, these tax collectors, all of these people who had followed Jesus in the aftermath of the resurrection, all of a sudden emerge on the scene with confidence, with this strong boldness that had previously never been present in their lives. I mean, Jesus, that... Like when Jesus was standing in front of the Jewish leaders and Peter, who's just like a few yards away on the other side of this room that I'm in. He denies even knowing Jesus, even though he was a well-recognized and even had the same accent that Jesus had. And Peter, the same man who had denied knowing Jesus, is now a couple months later standing in front of the most powerful leaders of the day, boldly declaring, like, I, I, with a confidence that he knows Jesus is alive. You see, the Christian faith should have never taken off. Like, I have confidence, not because the Bible says so, because that's a, that's a very overly simplistic way of saying it. It's because when you take the bigger view and you zoom out, the Christian faith should have never taken off in the first place. A group of illiterate, uneducated, non—kind of these were not guys who were chosen to be a part of the religious teaching of the day. These guys didn't make the cut. To go into rabbi school, and these were Jesus's core followers, and yet these core followers take the faith, the message that a man who had never written down a single bit of his teaching, who had never traveled more than a hundred miles from where he was born, who only had a public ministry of only three years, whose life and death has not been disputed by any credible historian in human history, who's not only validated from different accounts found within the Bible, but is also validated by other historians who were contemporaries in that same time period. No one disputes that Jesus was alive. And for us to realize that it's, we take for granted that we know the Christian story, but we should have never heard it in the first place. It should have stayed in that tomb. It should have stayed in Jerusalem and been forgotten, like the story of Mount Tambora from 1816. Most of us have never even heard that story. And yet that event, that day in 1815, when it exploded, rippled around the world and changed the world in 1816. In the same way, when Jesus walked out of the tomb, it rippled and changed the world till even to today. Because dead people stay dead. No one gets put in a tomb and brought back to life. But if they did, that would be the only explanation for what we see happen in the aftermath because you've got his followers now boldly leaving their homes that they'd never traveled beyond. You have some of the smartest, most brilliant people like Paul who's persecuting Christianity until he looks into the eyes of Jesus and realize that Jesus is alive and then becomes the most prolific writer and speaker in Christian history who travels well beyond where he was from. The disciples will take this very small, geographically defined movement, and they will eventually cause it and spark it into a global movement. And while they're doing that, over those 300 years, there will be no Bible... There will be no bound book because their faith is illegal. They're persecuted. They're fed to lions. They're beaten. They can't get jobs. Their wives are killed in front of them. And all they have to do to keep their wives and their kids is renounce Jesus. But they can't. Why? Because it's not something they grew up with. It's something that they saw. It was something they experienced. Like, look, when you meet Lazarus and he's no longer dead, or when you meet Mary, right? So, like, go back to Luke. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things. This was a massively, massively big deal in the first century. This is a pre-illiterate society. This is not the day of Twitter or this is not a day of Instagram where people are constantly kind of publishing and self-publishing. To publish anything in an illiterate society was expensive, time-consuming, and very difficult that only a few group of people could actually even have the knowledge to do so. Luke happens to be educated. He's actually literate. And so Luke, as an intelligent researcher, sets out to go about to describe what happens. And Luke starts his letter to Theophilus by saying, look, what happened? Not, no, not just the Joseph or Arimathea and uh, you know, a rebel being crucified because rebels trying to overthrow Rome were crucified regularly. What was amazing that many had undertaken to draw up an account of was the tomb that was still empty when he wrote this letter and the fact that nobody had expected to find nobody and that Luke is looking at the literature being published about Jesus and his resurrection. And he's hired by Theophilus to kind of set up a orderly account. Theophilus is essentially like, look, I see all the news stories. Luke, I want to pay you to be an investigative reporter I want you to go find out if this is true and give me the whole story, not just part of it. And this is what Luke does, right? Luke says the, that these things were fulfilled among us. They're contemporaries. It's one thing for us 2,000 years later to talk about Jesus and his resurrection. It's another thing for a document that was written in the generation in which J- Jesus was resurrected when the people Jesus did heal were still alive. It would have t- the Christian movement could have been stopped so many times. It wasn't just the body that you had to present that would have stopped it. It was just taking Lazarus walking out and saying, hey, actually, J.K., Jesus paid me some money. I wasn't really dead. I was just in the tomb wrapped up, and I came out. It was this big theatrical deal. Any of the people he healed could have easily said, Jesus never actually healed me. None of these people living in the contemporary time period, when Luke writes this letter, ever come forth to crush it. Now, you may say, well, didn't the church just stop it and squash it? That was 300 years later that the church begins to rise as an influential force in the political sphere. For 300 years, the Christian faith was outlawed. It was ridiculed. And how does a group of men and women who are ridiculed, persecuted, abused, and oppressed continue to love and serve and minister and make a difference and run into Justinian plagues when everyone else was fleeing How does that group of people who's known for their generosity and kindness documented by Roman historians and even replicated by future emperors? How does all of that happen? It's because that group of men and women had been sparked and had been born again because they had come to know and see with their own eyes. Like what Luke says, they were eyewitnesses that Jesus Christ was, in fact, dead and then came back to life. And that that is why Luke writes this letter. He says, I carefully investigated this. That was your mandate. If this had been a lie, Theophilus, that's what I would have given you. But what I find is I've investigated everything from the beginning. I sit down with Mary and I ask her questions. What was it like? And I spend time writing an orderly account, which is a first century way of saying a chronological order. And most excellent, Theophilus. Theophilus was an influential, affluent Roman official. And he says, here's what I know. Theophilus, this is what I figured out. You may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. That you may know that what you've heard What you've heard from those who said they've seen with their own eyes is, in fact, true. And that, Theophilus, you don't have to wonder anymore. Now you can just wonder at what's happened before. And that as we approach the Bible over the course of this month as grown-ups, I think we have to recognize the first question isn't well, what about this in the Bible? What about this in the Bible? But it's really questions that the Bible throws back at us. That how does a medical researcher turned investigative journalist spending his years investigating, right? Two volumes documenting the rise of something that no historians have refuted. No one disputes Jesus's death in the empty tomb. No one disputes the rise of this kind of strange movement that was not predicted in any other kind of religious circle that takes the Roman Empire and crushes it with love. How does a faith that should have never emerged from the Roman Empire emerge and go beyond? And 2,000 years later, this carpenter turned rabbi is a person I'm talking about right now. Like, how does... Someone like James, who was the brother of Jesus. I mean, one of our mentors likes to ask the question, what would it take for you to become convinced your brother is God? What would he have to do? Right? I mean, James, the brother of Jesus, writes a letter where he calls his brother Lord or God. And so there's a confidence and a certainty Because when we look at the historical records from extra biblical sources, we see an echo. We see the declaration of Jesus's life. And Josephus, one of the most kind of uh, most prominent historians from that time period, even goes as far to, to affirm Jesus's miracle working powers. But on top of that, you've got letter after letter after letters. You see what we call the Bible wasn't called the Bible until 300 years after Jesus's resurrection. That, For 300 years, the church would live underground for the most of it, passing these letters written by Luke, written by Mark, who had spent time with Peter, written by Matthew, who was one of Jesus' original followers, written by James, the brother of Jesus, written by Paul, who was originally Saul, the Christian terrorist, who crushed out, who tried to stop this Christian movement, who then, in a flip, became one of its most, most prominent spokesmen. I mean, like, if Bin Laden had had this moment in a cave one day 10 years ago where he's writing and reading and then all of a sudden published the video and he's got a make america great again hat on like maybe you wouldn't have believed that bin laden maybe you wouldn't maybe you wouldn't have even bought into america was great But I think if Bin Laden had been filmed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, wearing a Make America Great Again hat before it became that hat, like, and all of a sudden was talking about how it's the greatest nation on planet Earth, I think at least some people would have listened to him because they would have seen the radical turn. And I know that's an absurd argument, but you have to realize that was Saul becoming Paul. That's how radical his shift was. And when you have all of these people who are writing orderly accounts that this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I witnessed, this is what I experienced, that eventually 300 years later, those letters were collected and were put into what we call the New Testament. And what I think you find is that we eventually, like Luke's conclusion, you begin to approach the Christian faith with a little bit more certainty. In fact, I read this verse a couple of weeks ago to my little girl when we were having our Bible reading time, and I said, sweetie, at the end of the day, did you hear that phrase? This is so important. Daddy's not a Christian because he's a pastor. Daddy's not even a Christian because that's what growing up he heard about because he was born in this nation or because he had been exposed in other places. We're not Christians because we grew up with it. We're not Christians because even the Bible is our religious book as opposed to some other religious book. That the reason I'm a Christian and that I hope one day you become a Christian, because a Christian's not an automatic thing, is that you would become convinced like Daddy has become convinced. That 2,000 years ago, one of the most amazing, unbelievable carpenter-turned-rabbi, speaker, healer, redeemer, rescuer, a person who would walk into a room and would shift the whole dynamic, who was crucified and placed in a tomb, three days later walked out under his own power. That's why daddy's a Christian. Because if Jesus could do that, then whatever he says, I'm with him. And that I hope over the course of this month, as you lean in to messages that will feel a little different, because I want to take you through the Bible in a way that maybe you've never interacted with it before, that you too would see the ramifications and the implications of that event that we celebrate called Easter. And that whether you're someone exploring the faith or someone confident already, that you would grow uncertainty of the things that we discussed today.